I'm Michael Cross, host of the KOSU Daily Podcast. Every weekday, I bring you the biggest Oklahoma stories of the day with reporting and analysis from our team of journalists and partners. Get the news you need to start your day in less than 10 minutes. Find the KOSU Daily in your podcast feed and subscribe now. This Week in Oklahoma Politics is sponsored by Oklahoma State Medical Association, physicians dedicated to providing and increasing access to health care for all Oklahomans. More on its vision and mission at okmed.org. For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel. The U.S. Supreme Court has stayed the execution of death row inmate Richard Glossop, who was set to die next week. Glossop has received an unprecedented amount of support from state lawmakers and Attorney General Gettner Drummond. A rally in support of Glossop earlier this week even brought television celebrity Dr. Phil to Oklahoma City. So, Neva, where does Glossop stand now? Uh, Good question. I think the bigger issue kind of at hand is kind of how the, the lay of the land is on this whole case and, and where we see it. Before, it seemed to be a kind of a one-sided proposition. All we heard was pretty much the Glossop story. Now we're seeing the Bantrese family really start to weigh in heavily in, in the conversation. And they're, what they've described is really their disappointment, not only with the Supreme Court uh, staying, uh, but also the fact that they have engaged with a University of Utah law professor uh, to... Uh, file an independent brief that will ask the Supreme Court justices to over uh, to not overturn uh, the conviction. So you've got these personalities, these TV personalities, these uh, um, folks that uh, have the star power, you know, on the Glossop team. But now you have not only the Fa- Van Trees family um, beginning to really talk publicly, but you also have a number of DAs uh, mm-hmm. that uh, have shown, you know, real concern, uh, have been speaking out publicly about the fact that uh, that they're really uh, questioning uh, the attorney general and kind of his role in this process and, and, and uh, saying that uh, it really behooves the, the attorney general, certainly the DAs believe, that it is incumbent uh, in the process that the victim, that the uh, uh, victim's family uh, be, be really uh, front and center in having their story told and being able to communicate their thoughts. So this is a, this is a real give and take. I thought it was interesting. The rally um, was kind of uh, wanted to be kind of the showboat uh, atmosphere, and yet really it was a very paltry crowd, I mean, in terms of numbers. Uh, so you had you had some folks that got the headlines, but I'm not sure it did much to uh, kind of change the dialogue. Ryan, well, I was out there in that crowd. Uh, you know, I, w- I wanted to see what was said, and and uh, it was hot. It was really hot that day. I went back into the Capitol, and you know, everybody everybody's uh, you know, I think sweat through all of their uh, their Capitol clothes if you're out there because it was a hot May day. Uh, Dr. Phil, who has been a champion for Richard Glossop. Uh, for many years now, has has featured uh, the Glossop case and what he uh, sees as um, as violations of Mr. Glossop's rights throughout the course of this. And of course, you had Representative Kevin McDougal there, who has been uh, one of the leaders in the legislature uh, pushing for um, the release, ultimately the release of Richard Glossop. He was somebody who came to believe in Richard Glossop's innocence after 
multiple times uh, approaching district attorneys, former attorney generals, asking for the information that he believed had been withheld from multiple juries at this point. Um, there's, this is the intersection of a lot of things. Uh, you've got uh, the question of prosecutorial power, which is enormous, especially in the state of Oklahoma, but really anywhere. You have the issue of prosecutorial misconduct, which happens. Uh, you know, even even though we'd like to think that our justice system is blind, it is not. There is a uh, you know a decided um, uh, advantage that prosecutors enjoy whenever they charge uh, and begin to prosecute a crime. <clears throat> and then you have this issue of the death penalty itself, and you know the prospect of in- executing an innocent person. So you have. People like Representative McDougal uh, saying that they support capital punishment, but they want to see it done right. And if it can't be done right, he said he'd be out at the legislature. Uh, if the state of Oklahoma kills Richard Glossop, he'll be at the legislature fighting to end the cap, uh, the system of capital punishment in the state of Oklahoma. You know, I thought the crowd was interesting in that you had people from the left and the right there. Uh, I mean, you've got some of the most conservative uh, members in the Oklahoma political world and some of the most liberal members in the Oklahoma political world out there with this common goal of, of saving Richard Glossop's life, uh, which, you know, but then ultimately raising these other important policy questions that have to happen. But underneath all of this, there are people. Uh, you know, I, I think that Dr. Phil said the Van Trees family, um, you know, he, he feels that he understands their need for justice, and, and so do I. Um, but I think that justice is really making sure that the wrong, or the, making sure that the wrong person isn't held accountable uh, for the death uh, of their loved one, and that the right person is. Um, and then ultimately, you've got you know Richard Glossop himself, who has been through this six times. I think he's had three last meals until the Supreme Court lifted the stay or or, or put a, put the stay in place on Friday. He was um, hours away from being moved to death watch, which was, you know, feet away from the death chamber, mm-hmm. uh, you know, your 24 hours lights on and, 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 and uh, solitary confinement. He was just, you know, minutes away or, or hours away from that happening until the Supreme Court intervened. I do think it's interesting going back to this kind of give and take between the district attorneys and their comments uh, with respect to the attorney general. I think it's significant, not only in this case, but looking looking forward, because they have been very straightforward about the fact that they that they feel strongly that uh, that uh, the victims' rights that they have to be protected. They feel like in the case of in this instance with Glossop, that uh, you had the attorney general basically taking on the opposite role of what they viewed his role is in this process. And I don't think they're going to let up on that. I mean, I think they're going to continue to have those conversations with the AG. I think they're going to continue to uh, uh, to really kind of ramp up their um, their thoughts on this process so that so that there really are two sides to the story. And I think that's the thing that has emerged since the U.S. Supreme Court's ruling is that everyone feels it's now time to press forward and make sure that their voice is heard. The easiest thing for the attorney general to have done here is to do nothing. I mean, mm-hmm. politically, he could have done nothing. Uh, and, you know, if he wanted to run for re-election or if he wants to run for governor at some point, uh, this could be something around his neck, um, you know, un- undoubtedly. But he firmly believes that the, the right thing to do was to call for an independent investigation. He put a retire or a for, former district attorney, former state representative, Rex Duncan, in charge of that independent investigation, somebody who is, you know, by definition, Mr. Law and Order. And he came to this conclusion that Mr. Glossop was innocent and at the very least needed a new trial. And, and the, the attorney general, you know, followed that. And so um, not the innocent part, but the fact that he felt that there was a new trial that was necessary. So this is if, if, you know, regardless of which side of this you're on, we are witnessing a statewide elected official do something that is 
pretty rare in 2023, mm-hmm. which is to act against their own political interest in the name of something that they believe is right. Lawmakers have just two weeks left in the session as they must finish work by May 26. There is still a lot of unfinished business like education funding. There was supposed to be a public debate last week, but Senate President Pro Tem Greg Treat canceled it when Governor Stitt and House Speaker Charles McCall declined to attend. Ryan, what's the latest on this fight? Well, if you're out at the Capitol, uh, most people just kind of shrug their shoulders. I mean, this this <laughs> le- this week at the, at the Capitol, much like last week, not a lot has happened, uh, you know, at least out public facing. I think that there uh, are ostensibly things happening behind closed doors. Who are behind those closed doors? We don't really know. We don't know what those groups look like. We don't know what the delegations necessarily look like from the House to the Senate or the governor's office that are having these conversations. Um, I think you know, Ryan Walters desperately wants to be a part. Uh, I, I don't think that he is relevant at all in any of this. So it really is coming down to Speaker McCall, President Pro Temp Treat, and then, you know, to, you know, to some extent, the governor. And where, where's the governor going to be at the, on this? He seemed uh, early on to be leaning towards the House plan. The House, you know, as we'll recall from last week, had this, you know, um, you know rare parliamentary, parliamentary uh, procedure where they captured a bill uh, that provided for the, the tax incentives or the vouchers uh, holding out for some sort of a p- uh, teacher pay raise and, and some funding formula for, uh, for rural schools. Because the political context of this is last year, the Senate couldn't even pass this education bill out of their body. But if it had, even if it had, and it went to the House, it was going to be DOA. You had rural members in the House that were running for re-election, and they did not want to go to the ballot box having uh, a charge against them that they voted against their rural schools, or they voted to do something that benefited metropolitan and suburban districts uh, at the expense of rural schools. And rural lawmakers in the House, they want something to go home with. And the speaker is insistent on that. Now, what that looks like, who knows? I did see uh, you know, former Justice Stephen Taylor at the Capitol yesterday. Uh, apparently, he is, um, from what I heard, mediating. I don't, again, oh. I don't know who those party, parties are, but that's, that's kind of an interesting thing. I like that as, as someone who is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of mediation. Uh, as you know, I've been a part of mediations on, uh, on the party side. I've been a mediator myself. I think that that's a great idea to bring in a, a, a neutral third party to you know, help uh, facilitate these conversations. Neva, I, I think that's right, and I think it was necessary. I mean, you had basically uh, you had the governor and his team, the speaker and his team, the pro tem and his team. You get them all in the room, and nothing was really happening. Uh, at least that was the conjecture outside that that there was no real movement. And I think that having Justice Taylor there certainly uh, added a positive uh, dynamic to that. And I think out of that, probably what ultimately we see is it has to get back to you have to bring a team of negotiators from the house and the senate in you would presume that that's going to be the uh, education folks on both sides that would be representative Rhonda baker and representative mark mcbride and on the senate side it'd be senator adam Pugh and senator Dwayne pemberton so those would be the folks that are that are the most conversant and in the weeds so to speak on the um, the policy side of this negotiation and that really if they're going to hammer down and get something done um, while the clock is really ticking down seriously those folks are probably going to be the ones to be able to strike uh, strike some sort of a, a deal take it back to their caucuses and see if they can get the support and get this done 
uh, the danger point, obviously, is the time. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, we're looking at just days, a few days at the most, away from not being able to get a budget uh, through the process during this regular session, which means, as we talked about last week, special session in the offing and, and perhaps earlier mid-June. Um, but the the bottom line is um, it's not only the the crunch on education and what else is going to take place or what is going to take place in terms of will there be um, what, what will happen and ultimately will it be to the benefit of all of the schools or will it be the winners and losers concept that uh, Pro Tem Tree te- keeps talking about that it can't just be the conversation about rural schools, uh, it has to be about everyone. And then of course the teacher pay raise, uh, which gets kind of tossed into that uh, mix is still part of the conversation. So um, you're right, Ryan. I mean, I think the last two weeks have been basically just ever, the wheels grinded to a halt and now everyone's standing around seeing if something can get done and, and the deal can be struck. We've seen it many times in many sessions. It's always this late session drama. But in this instance, I think it's going to take uh, a real push to get something done. My good friend Tyler Powell out at the Capitol said, you know, we're, we're not at a uh, special session warning yet, but we are at a special session watch. <laughs> Again, only two weeks to go for the regular legislative session, and there remains dozens of vetoes lawmakers need to override. Some of the vetoes include continued operations for public television OETA, greater access to overdose reversing drugs, allowing tribal regalia for students at school events, and updates to the state's name image likeness regulations. Neva, will lawmakers be able to get to any of these? I don't know. I mean, the general question when it's been posed this week, most folks have said, I don't know, and don't count on it. So uh, there hasn't been a strong conversation about uh, the push for the overrides. And that, you know, obviously for many of these folks that have bills out there uh, sitting with (laughs) the governor's veto pen on it and hoping for an override, I I think they're just going to sit and wait and see what happens, and it probably will be in the 11th hour. But I, I would say at this point, no one should presume that they may pull the rabbit out of the hat and get it done. Right. And again, we, we tape Thursday mornings. Uh, uh, so anything could happen yeah. at this point. Um, you know, we may be taping this and, and, uh, and then within the hour, they, they schedule one of these overrides. But I, I agree with Neva. Time is running out. Um, nobody really seems to be talking about scheduling those things. I think that when you talk to members, the one thing that they can agree on is that if many of these bills did come up for an override vote, that the governor's veto would be overridden. You know, if you look at the, the OETA funding bill, which was House Bill 2820, people will tell you, if, if this comes up, you know, we're going to override the governor's veto. It's just a matter of does it come up. And these veto overrides have to start in the chamber of origin. So mm-hmm. the House has to schedule an override for 2820. Uh, you know, if you look at the tribal regalia bill, that's a Senate bill. It's got to start over in the Senate. Um, any number of these bills, you know, and, and some of these things just got caught. And those are two of the, the ones that are getting a lot of attention. Um, you, you know, you've got one House Bill 2608, uh, which, uh, you know, Representative Humphrey uh, wrote this bill. It's a it's meant to be a cooperation between tribal governments uh, and tribal law enforcement and state law enforcement in terms of sharing information about sex offender registration. Um, 
yeah, I think everybody would say, well, wait a second, that, that makes a lot of sense. You know, I think that the sex offender registry, you know, myself personally is, is, is broken in many ways and doesn't provide, you know, good, uh, actionable information for the public or for law enforcement. But to the extent that it's going to exist, you'd want that cooperation to happen between tribal governments and, and their law enforcement in the state of Oklahoma. That was vetoed it's sitting out there right now. Um, but you know, so there are, there's a, there's a list of these that are out there. The only one that has um, that I'm aware of that you've had an actual override vote on, but you've only had it in one chamber. And we talked about this a while back. That was the, the clawback money from the, from the Medicaid uh, funding that came in from the federal government that had been sitting in the health care authority uh, that would have brought that money back to the legislature so that they could appropriate it. The governor vetoed it, leaving that money with the health care authority in their discretion. Um, but the only chamber that's overridden that so far is the Senate. Mm-hmm. The House can mm-hmm. still act on it, but they have not scheduled it uh, at this point. You know, one of the other bills also is that's had a lot of early conversation was the one uh, that brings Oklahoma in line with other states on the name mm-hmm. image likeness, the NIL uh, regulations for college sports, which, uh, again, I mean, there's a there's a, a, a significant constituency there that is very interested. And the fact that that one got the veto pen, I mean, they are concerned, would like to see that, uh, would like to see that uh, ultimately uh, become law, but it's many of these 30, 30 something bills that uh, that the governor took his pen to before things kind of slowed down and at least they stopped the vetoes and decided, can we get to the table and try to work this out some in some way? And even the governor still is wanting to run for higher office. Will any of these vetoes come back to bite him? Because it's going to come out that he vetoed OETA, he vetoed tribal regalia, all this kind of stuff. Absolutely. And I think I think all of these folks and the speculation on running for higher office, I mean, you have the two top House uh, leaders, I mean, mm-hmm. Speaker McCall, uh, the conversation out there swirling about running for governor, uh, uh, John Eccles, the number two, uh, talking about uh, running for attorney general, possibly. So uh, these, these dimensions, the political dimensions, sometimes muck up the ability to really get the good policy decisions made and be able to get something forged that their that their folks can go back home and talk about. And you're right, Ryan. I mean, rural lawmakers, I mean, are not going to uh, stand in the House. When you look at their numbers, they're, I don't think they're going to give up the opportunity to make sure that their folks are taken care of. And, and that's an across-the-board deal. Each legislator has a constituency that, they're, that they really, I think, uh, pay attention to and want to be responsible and receptive to their needs and wishes as much as possible. And this is where the rubber meets the road right now, where we get to these final, these final negotiations, the final give and take, and ultimately the final compromise. Which right now, you know, when you look at it, that this standoff looks like is a compromise even possible. You have to assume that uh, that cooler heads will prevail, and at the end, we hopefully will see something. And I think most lawmakers. If, if they were asked, would tell you they hope it happens uh, uh, in the in the next two weeks, and that they don't have to uh, come back for a special session. But that's certainly an option on the table. The ACLU of Oklahoma is challenging a new state law criminalizing medical care for transgender minors. Senate Bill 613 punishes doctors found in violation by revoking their licenses and charging them with felonies, resulting in up to one hundred thousand dollars in fines or ten years in prison. The lawsuit in federal court asserts the measure signed by Governor Stitt discriminates on the basis of sex and transgender status and violates the plaintiff's rights to equal protection under the 14th Amendment. Ryan, do you think the ACLU has a case here? Well, let's add in that uh, the due process right of, uh, of the fundamental right of parents to make decisions for their children. 
Uh, so you've got you've got two main challenges there, both that equal protection uh, clause challenge under the Fourteenth Amendment and the due process uh, clause challenge also under the Fourteenth Amendment. I think both of those make very strong cases. Uh, if you if you read through the plaintiff's brief in this, and and you know the the plaintiffs that have had to stand up, you know, congratulations uh, and thanks to them uh, for being willing to put their name out there because this is, it's always hard. It's always hard to put your name out there, to put your children out there, uh, to fight for what's right. But sometimes you've got to do that. And, and that's exactly what they're doing. If you read through the plaintiff's brief, uh, that goes along with their petition, what you begin to see is a case of, you know, how this will impact each and every one of those individual plaintiffs, uh, and in particular the children and what they're having to decide to do with regard to how is my kid going to get their continued care? Uh, do they have to go live with a family member in another state? Do they have to? Do we have to begin to try to arrange for you know very expensive trips uh, to go to another state where this this care is legal? Um, the other thing that I think that you see in this brief is um, some some of the a lot of the, the kind of like the polarization of this issue, right? You know, the the idea that you know on on one hand you've got doctors out there that are just mutilating children, uh, and then on the other hand that you've got folks out there you know just clamoring into medical facilities trying to get gender reassignment surgery. None of those, neither of those things are true. Uh, and if you begin to read through this brief, you see you know what actually happens whenever a child presents with gender dysphoria, which is a medical condition, uh, and what doctors have to do before they ever do any sort of intervention, and the primary intervention uh, for most of these children is counseling uh, to help them, uh, you know, help them cope with having gender dysphoria. Uh, you know, that, that is something that happens well before you ever get to the point where you have some sort of medical intervention with uh, pharmaceuticals and even the rarer instance. I mean, extraordinarily rare whenever you're talking about people under 18, surgical intervention. Um, so I, I love that this brief really uh, drills down and has, a, I think, a, a, an honest conversation about what this looks like, what the impact is. Uh, and I, I think that they've got a very strong success, uh, success for, um, a potential up front, especially to get the court to put a stay on this law and prevent it from going into effect, at least until the court can hear further argument. Neither. Well, and, there's, and there are a lot of arguments being made out there and a lot, of, uh, a lot of conversation and action being taken in other states. And some of that undoubtedly undoubtedly will uh, play a role in, in the conversation here in Oklahoma in this particular suit. For instance, in, you know, in, in Florida this year, the uh, Florida uh, Board of Medicine, they passed and adopted uh, new standards of care, and they outlawed doctors in the state from performing uh, reassignment surgery or prescribing uh, puberty blockers to minors. And so, um, you're seeing you're seeing this conversation. It was interesting that 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 action really came after they brought in uh, <clears throat> the leading expert on pediatric uh, gender medicine and the chief psychiatrist for the largest gender clinic in Finland, uh, who has become a very uh, a very strong uh, advocate on talking about the need to really be clear that in her in her estimation she says after a decade of work in this area that i think four out of five gender questioning children eventually accept their bodies was her terminology and uh, don't that uh, choose and do not want the medical intervention carried out so there's a lot of controversy here and we have to remember we have to break out we're talking about minors only we're not talking about adults and i think it was interesting interesting even in the legislature, in, in, when the discussion came up in the Senate, 
that they took uh, what was uh, really a fairly unprecedented move in not allowing unlimited debate. They wanted the sides to that they wanted a civil, <coughs> excuse me, discourse, and they wanted to address the subject, get a vote, and move on. And I think that's what occurred. And I think that was a positive way to deal with this issue. That clearly, I think everyone expected it to be where it is today, sitting in uh, in a uh, court action, and we'll have to move through that process. Well, now, the state of Oklahoma, if you if you look at the way this law is applied, and and the discrimination against the class based upon sex. And then based upon, um, you know, the transgender status or the gender dysphoria diagnosis of a child, you know, what what you see is, you know, that is on its face uh, a discriminatory act against somebody based on the basis of sex. Um, If the state of Oklahoma had barred maybe all elective surgeries for all children, um, then, you know, I think probably the the state may have a better case to be made that it wasn't made out of animus towards gender uh, people suffering with gender dysphoria and then the transgender kids that have gender dysphoria, you know, but that would catch into things like circumcision. And I I think I saw a a statistic that around 70% of Oklahoma uh, uh, infant boys are circumcised. And most people would say that that's an elective operation. And, you know, so you don't see, you know, that kind of like that huge net that's cast out there. It is really targeted. And then on the fundamental rights of parents, as, as a parent myself, Um, You know, unfortunately, there are a lot of parents in Oklahoma uh, every day that have to make very difficult medical decisions. Um, You know, do I, the treatment sometimes can carry a lot of risk. And, you know, does this, is there any risk there? Well, the idea that you have to have zero risk before a parent can make that decision uh, just doesn't really hold up when you think about, you know, things like if a a child needed chemotherapy, uh, you know, that there's a lot of risk and a lot of consequences that go along with that but not doing it would be even worse. And so parents are able to make that, and really that's where those decisions need to be left is with parents and these doctors. The state Republican Party has selected Broken Arrow Senator Nathan Dom as its new chairman. Dom is no stranger to this program, as we have talked about many of his conservative pieces of legislation and his various runs for higher office. Neva, what do you think of this election? Well, it, it was a classic party election. Uh, I think uh, Democrats and Republicans alike have their state conventions. They have a, a process that's outlined to elect their leadership. In this instance, uh, uh, it was actually a three-way race. You had the the current sitting chairman, A.J. Ferrati, then you had former state uh, Rep, uh, Representative Sean Roberts, and then the late entry, actually just a few days before the state convention last Saturday and the vote, uh, you had uh, Senator Nathan Dom jump in the race. So uh, it it was an interesting um, it was an interesting vote, and certainly a very spirited, competitive uh, an election. Uh, you had about a thousand Republicans across the state that came in to uh, be part of that process, and ultimately um, it came down to a runoff between uh, Nathan Dom and Sean Roberts, and Nathan Dom with the with the uh, added benefit of AJ Ferrati's. Uh, uh, encouragement to his supporters to support Dom, he won overwhelmingly with 60% of the votes. So he will serve simultaneously as the state party chairman and uh, continue in his role as a state senator. And we will see, I mean, kind of how that moves forward. We There's always this give and take in in grassroots party politics, and I think probably the Democrats would say the same thing, in terms of the uh, the folks that are passionate, involved, and active at that level. And these are the folks that decide how the party apparatus, the party organization, is going to function coming into the next election cycle. Ryan. Well, you know, I think that this is uh, 
was probably preordained, at least with regard to A.J. Ferrati. I mean, he, he kind of sealed his fate whenever he questioned the claims that the, uh, that the 2020 election was stolen uh, somehow. And, you know, the, those baseless claims. And, I, you know, he was up front soon after he was elected. And, and that was, you know, selected after uh, the, the past chair stepped down. And so... Um, John Bennett. John Bennett, mm-hmm. who to run for Congress. And mm-hmm. so whenever he came into that role and after that election... I think Ferrati really wanted the party to move away uh, from the, the kind of the January 6th uh, election denying uh, part of the of the party. Um, but apparently that was you know not the best political move for him. When you think about who shows up at, uh, at party conventions and like Neva said, kind of on both sides, you, you're going to see it uh, you know, tilt a little bit further either to the right or to the left of where most of the voters that are registered there actually affiliate. And so uh, whenever he did that, he, he had to know that that was going to make it very difficult. Now, if he'd been in a, in a head-to-head race, uh, in, a, in a two-way race, maybe uh, he has a little bit of a shot. But whenever you've got, you know, three folks that come in there, um, you know, he was, even then, he still wasn't, at, even with kind of the far-right vote split, he still couldn't even make a runoff. Mm-hmm. I think that this is, um, I see a parallel between this and potentially how the electorate shapes up for 2024. Uh, you know, we when we look at who's going to run for governor in 2024, uh, you see some candidates that um, are going to be running you know, more to a moderate side of the Republican Party um, that aren't, you know, the the, the Trump acolytes. Uh, and then you're going to if somebody jumps in that is, you know, really far to the right and you've got that primary base there, there's an avenue for somebody to come in and win win that election further to the right than even, say, Kevin Stitt. And in, tw- in 2026. In 2026, yeah. my apologies, yeah. 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 And even just a few uh, weeks ago, we were talking about Nathan Dahmer with John Stewart. Would, would this hurt him in any way? And apparently not. This has actually helped him with his No, base. in fact, I think in his, uh, in his speech, uh, he basically uh, made, the, made the statement, words to the effect that I'm not afraid of anybody, talked about Piers Morgan, talked about uh, John Stewart, talked about the, the willingness to kind of take the debate wherever it needs to go. He also talked about the, the need to be uh, very, uh, very focused on candidate recruitment, very focused on grassroots organization. Obviously, money is a big part of uh, uh, any uh, uh, political operation. So he'll have many hats to wear. He'll have to put a team together, keep some of the existing folks that were there. Whatever he chooses to do will be his prerogative. And then there were changes to the the overall structure of how the state committee and executive committee, how the process would work. Um, and how uh, the changes that uh, the, the grassroots folks there at the convention uh, felt very passionately about, argued for hours about in some instances. And uh, out of that, uh, we have the setup for the organizational framework for 2024, starting with the presidential preference primary early next year. Senator Dom had kind of a, an interesting statement uh, where he said that he was going to make sure that those candidates running as Republicans followed the Republican platform. Um, I want to know how in the heck is he going to accomplish that? You know, what tools does he have within the state party or within his political apparatus to enforce that? So, you know, uh, stay tuned. I'm interested to see what happens there. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at donate.kosu.org. This Week in Oklahoma Politics is sponsored by Oklahoma State Medical Association, physicians dedicated to providing and increasing access to health care for all Oklahomans. 
More on its vision and mission at okmed.org.